Hi everybody and welcome to New Hope Community Church. My name is Ian Buckley. Whether it's your first time with us or you join with us regularly, grab hold of the notes so you can follow along with us in the study of Elisha. I want to start today by asking you a question. Have you ever had the thought pass through your mind, God, I could really use your help right now, but nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to change. Or worse, things are going from bad to worse. Or have you ever thought, or asked yourself the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And isn't trouble usually a punishment for sin? Well, actually, not always. And you're going to hear that today from our study. 600 years before this account we're going to look at, Moses had given God's people the conditions for blessing in the land. And it was simply this. Worship the Lord your God only, serve him, and obey his commandments, and you'll be blessed in every way. But if you turn from the Lord and you worship idols and false gods, which aren't gods at all, it won't end up well for you. Now, that sounds prima facie pretty much like a simple cause and effect, doesn't it? It was as if that you saw a prosperous person walking down the street. You would know, well, they must be following the Lord. On the other hand, if you saw a poor person, they thought... They weren't following the Lord, but that isn't that simple. Now, even though the nation at that point in time was characterized by gross idolatry, everyone in Israel hadn't been seduced by idols. There were some that hadn't. In fact, there were several cities. I mentioned four of them last week, but let's just look at three of them. There was Bethel, there was Jericho, and Gilgal. They were just three. That What we would call today housed Bible schools or seminaries where men came to study God's word. And there were communities that were established for mutual encouragement and instruction. And this is where you'll read in the Bible about things called the sons of the prophets, a group or the company of prophets. Now, God's major prophet in the land at the time, whether it would have been Elijah or Samuel or Elisha, had a very close connection with these schools. In fact, they were acted like the professors and they would teach them what they knew. Elisha, who was God's prophet at this particular time that we're going to look at today, had an itinerant ministry all around Israel. And he would visit these schools regularly and then he'd instruct them. See, these men were the faithful few who swam upstream against the prevailing current in their culture. Now you'd think, surely God would demonstrate through them the material prosperity that he promised to the faithful in the Mosaic Covenant. That would just make sense, right? But instead, today we're going to see in 2 Kings 4, It explodes with its seeming inconsistency before our very eyes. So I want to pick up, if you've got your Bibles, follow along, and if you haven't, you can use the outlines, to look at 2 Kings 4, and there we're going to see three scenes. The first scene we're going to see here is in Elisha's home, in verse 1 through 4. And this is where the widow is going to request the prophet's help, and and Elisha is going to give her some instructions. Scene number two is in verse 5 and 6. And the widow, this is where we see it's the widow's home, where the widow and her two sons miraculously fill a multitude of jars with olive oil. And then finally, the third scene, we're back to Elisha's pad. 
And this is where Elisha tells the widow how she can experience the blessing of a miracle that has happened in her life. Now it's interesting to notice as we look at this account in this story that all three scenes, the widow is the one who takes initiative. In scene one, she cries out to Elisha for help. Scene one. In scene two, she carries out his command. Scene two. And then in scene three, she comes back to tell Elisha what has happened through the power of God. So let's pick this up in verse one, where Elisha, the man of God, begins to lead this desperate widow from a place of deep trouble to a place of deliverance and well-being. So number one, the first I'm going to look at is her cry or the cry, the cry of her heart, verse one through two. And here is the account of a widow who is crying out to Elisha for help. This woman was desperate for three particular reasons. Number one, she was experiencing death. She was experiencing the effects of a death. The Bible says this in 2 Kings 4.1. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. Can you just see her facing Elisha? Your servant, my husband, revered the Lord. You know him, and he's one of your students. And you know that he was a godly man, that he loved God, and now he's dead. So what's her problem? She's basically asking two things here. Number one is, why has this calamity happened to us? I mean, this is terrible. And why did the prom- didn't the promises of prosperity that we thought for the righteous come true for us? Why did my husband die in the prime of life? Before we could straighten out our financial difficulties and provide for his family. In other words, she's saying, that's not fair. He loved you. He's dead. He's gone. And I'm left with a mess. Have you ever thought that? Normally in the Bible, cries for help are addressed to God. But here, the woman particularly pleads with Elisha because her husband was a disciple of Elisha. This woman was in a whole heap of trouble and facing the aftermath in the death of her husband. Things were not chaotic. They were in a pickle. But that's only one part of the story. She also had a very serious problem, which is related to the first problem of debt. So death was the first one and debt is the second. Two kings for one, the second part, B. And the creditor has come to take my two sons, children, which you'll later see as sons, to be his slaves. So this woman was distraught not only because her husband had recently passed away. She was uh, leaving her in deep financial problems. She was in debt and her creditors were on the way to her house. Somebody from Baycorp coming to pick you up. And to take away her two sons so that they could work for them as slaves. That had an implication. They'd be no longer with her until they'd paid off the debt, which was what owed was owed by them. Now, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse starting at 39, 
This is where you have this line of provision in the Mosaic law. That's Leviticus 25.39. And there was a provision there for the payment of debt when you had no money. And let me summarize it briefly for you. You worked it off in labor, sweat equity. Now that's perfectly valid, but there's a big difference here in what was happening. You are not to be slaves. You are hired hands, not slaves. But notice in that verse, it says slaves. See, God was very careful to place a limit on the time you could serve. Actually, the most you could ever serve was six years, and then you had to be released in the seventh. And God's rationale for that was you were once slaves in Egypt for all that time, and you will never be slaves again. So it's worth noting here, particularly, that holiness is no more a man's guard against debt than death. For example, have you ever seen a good, wholesome, Christian business person brought down because people didn't pay them in a timely fashion? Or even perhaps more colloquially, they get caught by COVID-19. That was not their fault. Her husband was a good man who honoured his mentor, and yet all of these bad things are now happening to his family. Now that meant for a widow of her age, she'd have no security, especially if her boys were taken from her. It was the sons who took care of the aged parents. Now, consider for a moment what a dire situation she was in. She was facing loneliness. She was facing bereavement. She was facing despair and even the possible early death because of the oppression of a creditor that was violating the law of God. Remember, they could be used as hired hands, not slaves. Verse 2 tells us she was also destitute and therefore desperate and in despair. The first half of the story is all about loss. This woman's husband had died. She's no money. So she's destitute. Her children are about to be taken from her. That is desperation and despair. Now in verse 2, we learn that she's on the verge of starvation. And all she's got left in her whole house is a single jar of olive oil. 2 Kings 4.2 And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So this is an important question to ask. You see, this will be no welfare type of handout. God typically started with what she had. And there's a principle in this that's supported all the way through scripture. And it's this, God multiplies what we surrender to him. God multiplies what we surrender to him. She had so little, not even enough to feed herself. So she disparaged what she had. That's a mistake. Do you ever do that? God says, I want you to trust me to live by faith. I want you to serve me. I want you to accomplish this task or finish this project. And we answer, well, how can I? I don't have any talents. I don't have any resources. And I have nothing. But then you see, friends, God never made a nothing. He never did. He's asking you to surrender whatever you have and whatever you are, and he'll multiply it to accomplish what he has chosen for you to do. Now notice here, Elisha takes the time 
to listen to this woman so that he can help her. And the Bible often describes God as a God who hears, a God who cares, a God who provides for the widows and for the orphans. Actually, the psalmist describes God like this. He says, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 68 verse 5. That was one of the favorite verses that my mum had. And what is true of God, men and women should be true of us. We should be looking to help those in need, particularly solo mums and widows. Here's another verse in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So here at the beginning of this account, there's the cry of the woman because of the death of her husband and the potential loss of her two sons and the absolute absence of any food in the house except for one jar of valuable olive oil. Second, after the cry, we see the command. What Elisha is about to tell her now is absolutely counterintuitive. 2 Kings 4, verse 3 and 4. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour it into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Now, I'm sure that the widow is listening and she's thinking, Say what? You want me to go door to door and ask all my neighbors for their empty jars? That's hard. Actually, well, they think I'm going to heist them all because they know I'm destitute. So, and then you want me to grab all these, bring them back home, shut the door, and then with the help of my two sons, begin to pour this oil out into the empty jars? And somehow one jar is supposed to fill all these empty jars? Now, friends, this is a test of the widow's faith on at least three counts. The first account is she has to believe that her neighbors will supply her with the empty jars. Secondly, that one single jar of oil will somehow fill all the other jars that she collects. And thirdly, that she can accomplish this task without the help of Elisha. Because he ain't going to be in the room when they shut that door. So ultimately, she has to trust God and not trust the prophet. Now, incidentally, perhaps God also wants to remind this community where this widow lived that they had a responsibility to her, which they were not fulfilling. They all should have helped her. They could have all pitched in and helped pay the debt off so the sons would never have to be taken from her. They were simply, those people in that community, were simply not obeying God's law in any way. But now at least, I guess, every family would be involved in contributing something. And by the way, thanks to those who helped out with the persecuted church financial offering last week. We'll be sending that money to them next week. So if there's still some of you who'd like to contribute, pop it into the church bank account and mark it persecuted. Number three. We've looked at the cry, we've looked at the command, now I want to look at the commitment, verses 5 and 6. 
So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to one of her sons, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. Now, friends, this qualifies in any man's language as a miracle, where God intervened and interrupted the normal physical order of this world to accomplish something for this woman that he had predetermined. This widow begins to pour out the contents of one jar into another, and then into another, and then into another of these borrowed vessels, and she fills each jar with oil. And miraculously, the oil continues to flow until all of the borrowed containers are full. Now, question, what effect do you think this had on her sons. Friends, they had a tangible demonstration of the love and the care and the power of the living God. Perhaps that's a lesson to us too. We need to share more with our children what God is doing in our lives. Not just about Him, but what He's doing in our lives. Oh yes, we may keep a journal. We may talk about the Lord to our friends. But often I've found we don't say enough to our children. You know, God is teaching me this. I had this problem and this is how God met my needs. Friends, you are the major source of information about God to your children. And why not make it to your grandchildren? Now notice that the oil is given according to the measure of the widow's faith in collecting those vessels. And when the vessels are full, what happens? The oil ceases. Had she borrowed more, more would have been provided. Had she gathered less, less would have been provided. So the principle is this. God's powerful provision invites our hard work and never excuses laziness. The principle is God's powerful provision invites our hard work and never excuses our laziness. So one of the great lessons we learn from this widow's commitment to God's promises through Elijah is that faith is a verb. It's a verb. So listen carefully because there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith. Some people think that faith is a warm feeling inside. It's just an attitude or an emotion Or, on the other side, some people think it's just an intellectual process. But notice that faith is not a noun. It is a verb. Faith is not something you feel. Faith is something you do. If you believe, you do what you're told to do. And throughout the Bible, it's consistently clear. Hebrews 11 is a well-known and a key chapter on faith. It summarizes a whole bunch of folk who had and practiced their faith. And it tells us what happened because they acted on their faith. So here's a point. Faith commits. It acts. Faith is astounding, it says in that chapter. It obtains. It understands. It offers. It pleases. It prepares. That's what faith does. It obeys. It goes out. It waits. It receives. It confesses. It declares. It seeks. It desires. It offers. And on it goes. And that's not even half of the things that faith does. Go read it. Hebrews 11. Fascinating. Inspiring. Encouraging chapter. 
So here's what we need to remember. Real faith grabs hold of the truth and hangs on, and real faith responds in action. There's an action to it. How do you know if you have faith? Well, what did you do when you received it? The Bible says faith without works is dead. I can almost hear you saying it. And there's a sense in which the word obedience is synonymous with the word faith. No obedience, no faith. Obedience is believing and doing what God tells you to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. See, real faith grabs hold of that truth. You know. So what I'm saying is, don't tell me that your faith is some little warm feeling in your heart. That's not faith. Faith exhibits itself in the way your life is changed and how you live. If you have faith, you'll be different. The Bible says when you become a Christian, all things will pass away. And behold, all things become new. Now, some folk walk around talking about their faith, but their faith isn't expressing itself in any tangible way. And you have to wonder, do they really understand what faith is? See, it's possible to misunderstand faith to our own detriment and parable. So we've looked at the cry of the widow, then we've looked at the command of Elisha and the widow's commitment. Now I want to look at how this account concludes. When the widow returns back to Elisha's house, she's filled with gratitude and excitement and tells him what's happened. In 2 Kings 4.7 she says this, She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So what we're seeing here is out of reverence and respect, she didn't want to do anything until she talked to Elisha. So she came back and she tells him all that God has done in her life and the miraculous provision. But he gives her two instructions. He says, about the money and about the oil. Firstly, he says, one, sell the oil, pay off all your debts, get rid of the creditors. First thing he says, second, take the rest of it and use it to take care of yourself and your sons going forward. Notice though, friends, pay your debts came first. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves every time we read the Holy Scriptures is this. How does what I've just read and heard affect my life today? I want to conclude with four principles that I see here. The first principle is a principle of personal desperation. I've been there and you've been there. When the widow needed help, she cried out to the Lord. She trusted that God could meet her need. Now, did you know that the little two-word phrase, cried out or cry out, appears just over 60 different times in the Bible. And so therefore, God wants us to know it's okay to cry out to him. Now, I know that some of you guys have learned what it means to cry out to God during these difficult days in the last six months, and challenging days. Now, you don't just pray to God. We're not talking about that. You cry out to God. See, when everything's okay, but maybe just not the way you want it, you pray. <laughs> but when things are desperate and things are going south rapidly, you cry out to God. And the Bible tells us that we should cry out to him when we're in need. Let's not forget that. Let's not be so self-reliant. The Bible says in Psalm 34, the righteous 
cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. Psalm 56 says, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. Psalm 57 verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose in me. And one final one here. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. Psalm 107, 28. So when we ask God for help, we are going to the one who can help, who's got all the power and all the knowledge and all the wisdom, to, to, to meet us where we are and to supply us with what we need. Paul came to that conclusion too. He said in Philippians 4.19, a very famous verse, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's worth dwelling for a moment on the life of Paul. And actually you can infer this to the life of many other great saints. If you were to chart their life, it would look like this. Something like this. Humble means, and they get prosperity. They can go hungry, and then being filled. Suffered in need, and having abundance. But Paul had learned to be content in whatever situation he found himself. So while all things come from God, God still tells us to ask him, because he's got everything that we need. Now let me be clear about this. Let me clarify something. Now I can't promise you that he will always answer every request that you have in the way that you want. But I can tell you that God answers prayer. And especially prayers of desperation from his people that are aligned with his will. So don't ever be afraid to cry out to God. That reminds me of the early years of our marriage when Kimberly had some major issue in her ear that caused an ever-present loud noise in her ear. It's enough to drive some people mad with that constant irritating loud sound that even if you put your hand over it, you can't get rid of it. Eventually she saw a doctor, and then again, and then eventually went to see a specialist, an ear specialist, or an audiologist, actually it's more than that, but a specialist. And he provided, I remember on that Friday, a very gloomy, written diagnosis of inner ear nerve damage, which is incurable. And he basically said to her, you are stuck with this for the rest of your life. And she said, well, what am I supposed to do when I get a bed? When everything's quiet, it's like a roaring wave in my ear. And it keeps me awake. And his suggestion was simple. In those days, you could tune a radio in between channels and get that kind of like white noise. Uh, And he said, it's very sad to see such damage in such a young lady, but that's my suggestion to you because this is no turning back. Now, as you can imagine, when she arrived home that night, we were all very disturbed and we didn't know what to do. So I remember at the dinner table, we, we ate dinner. And then at the end of it, we just said, we've got to pray. And we cried out to God as a family. The children prayed, and I prayed, and Kimberly prayed. And that was it. We left it in the Lord's hands. Well, the next morning, I was aware of some unexpected kerfuffle that was going on at the other end of our older house. And there was an animated discussion. And as I opened the door, it was Kimberly on the phone to her mother, looking very spry and very happy. And she was telling her mother at that exact moment, that awful sound in my ear, mum, has completely gone. See? And she was putting from phone from one ear to the other, because it, it was just, it was cr- crazy. So after she'd finished a conversation with her mother, I asked her to 
put on some of my headphones and then I turned the, vol- uh, the, the volume down very low and I balanced it to one side and then balanced it to another. And indeed, she could absolutely hear, which was staggering. The Lord had done a miracle. So on the following Monday, I called a specialist that Kimberly had been to, and I spoke to him myself. I said, can I just check something? You did see my wife on Friday, right? And this is your letter that you sent, right? And you say in this letter that she is incurable. It said incurable inner ear nerve damage. Is that correct? He said, absolutely. And it was very sad. I remember the case well. I said, what would you do if I was to tell you that she can now hear? And at first he said, well, that's not possible. Nobody recovers from that. I said, but friend, what would you do if I told you she could hear? I said, if true, that would be the best news I've ever heard in my entire practice. And because it was so sad, she was so young, I remember it so clearly. I said, she can hear. And I said, thank God. And he said, that's fantastic. And he even said, amen. Now, here's the point, interestingly. God used that story because I found out that this guy was a son of a Baptist pastor who'd backslidden. And that miracle was the first evidence he had ever seen of a miraculous healing. And that caused him to go back to church. Praise God. Here's the second principle, the principle of personal cooperation. God, through Elisha, set the criteria for the miracle. But the poor widow still had to carry out the instructions. There was initiative required on her part in order to experience the fulfillment. We see this principle throughout the Bible. For example, Elijah, who was Elisha's mentor in 1 Kings 17.7, we see him here promising a widow who had only a handful of flour and a little oil left that God would meet her needs. But there was a condition. First, she had to do something that tested her faith. And that was to feed the prophet with her meager resources. But what was the result when she obeyed what the Lord had said? 1 Kings 17, 16. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Now question, do you think that would have been true if she hadn't obeyed and she hadn't done what God had said? See, there was a prerequisite. This was a test that was of the command. She did what she was told to do, and God fulfilled his promise. We see this principle over and over again. What about Jesus' disciples? That's a classic. On one occasion, they'd been working all the way through the night trying to catch fish, but no joy. Does that sound familiar to anybody listening to this? I know what that feels like. You go fishing, come back empty-handed. Anyway, next morning, Jesus told them to go out a bit deeper and let their nets down once more. And you think, oh man, we've been here all this time. But nevertheless, they obeyed, even though counterintuitive. And what was the result? Luke 5. And when they'd done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now that, friends, is an overabundance there. Question. Would the disciples have landed that bunch of fish if they hadn't obeyed the Lord? What do you think about that? I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Here's the point. The blessing came from doing what God had told them to do. And that is throughout scripture. When someone requested a miracle of Jesus, often he linked it 
that possibility of a miracle to some form of personal cooperation on their part. Remember, obedience is a synonym for faith. Here's another one. He talked to the woman who suffered for 12 years who was hemorrhaging blood. And she'd spent all of her money on many different doctors. This one tried, no, it didn't work. Try another one, didn't work. She spent all of it. Actually, they made the condition worse. She was hopeless. And look what happens. Mark 5.34. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus told Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, in Mark 5.36, don't be afraid, just have faith. And here's a fourth example. He told a man whose son was suffering from convulsions. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, how many of you know that if we are unwilling to do what God tells us to do, then we lose the advantage that is ours because of our relationship with him? That's the part of divine cooperation. Do you recall a few months back when we looked at Joshua and the children of Israel as they were getting ready to cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land? And God said, hey, I want you to get the priests here were the Levites with the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to put them on their shoulders. And then I want you to get, move, get them moving ahead of the people and then get them into the water. When their feet are in the water, then I'll stop the waters. Because up until that time, God hadn't stopped the river from flowing. In fact, it was in flood. It was the worst possible time to go across that river. But here's the deal. As soon as they walked into that water... The water stopped, and they walked through in dry ground. Here's the account, Joshua 3. It was a harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance, away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. So let me ask you this question now. What is God asking you to do so that he can do for you what you need him to do? What is God asking you to do so that he can do for you what you need him to do? See, God blesses obedience. He blesses faith. And this is the principle of personal desperation. And it says, I will cry out to God. Next, the principle of divine cooperation. This says, I will do what God tells me to do. I'll do my part. I can't do the miracle. But whatever God tells me to do, I'm going to do it. And that is faith. Faith without works, remember, is dead. James 2.17 you won't have a faith story unless you're willing to show how you're responding to what God has called you to do. Fourth and last, and this is the principle of potential limitation. Potential limitation. See, God's generosity was conditioned by the woman's obedience. And the amount of oil that she received was governed by the number of jars that she collected. This is a powerful biblical principle, and it's found in the account of Jesus healing two blind men. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29. According to your faith, be it done to you. 
Now the words according to your faith means in response to your faith. And by the way, interestingly, healing of a blind man had never occurred in the Old Testament or in Judaism before Jesus. So this is a red letter moment. Finally, let me tell you that this account that we study today is a wonderful picture of the most important story in the Bible. And that's the story of redemption. Just as this widow was in financial distress and in danger of losing everything, she experienced a miracle. And her sons were redeemed from future slavery and they got to personally experience the blessing of God. Do you know, though, that the Bible tells us another type of slavery? This slavery is to sin, and it creates a debt we can never repay. But thankfully, Jesus came to redeem us from an enslaved life. Just at the right moment, God sent Jesus to redeem us. We were desperate, but there were no other options. We had no place to go. We tried it all. And some of you have been down that path and know what I mean. Everything you have tried has left you just as empty as you were before. So the only answer is Jesus. He's the only one and the just at the right moment Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross, to set us free from the slavery of sin. Now the way that you and I cooperate with this miracle because of what Jesus has done, here's what the Bible says. For whomever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The question is to you today, have you called on his name to be saved? Have you called on him in desperation? Have you said, Lord God, I need you in my life. I want Jesus Christ to be my savior. And the Bible says, if you do that, God will hear you and he will save you. So I want to ask you again, have you ever called on the name of Jesus? Have you ever asked Jesus to be your savior? Friend, do what this woman did. Out of desperation in your heart, simply cry out to God. And he will send his son to live in your heart and save you from your sin. Then your victory will be just as great as the victory of this woman. Let's pray together in prayer. Father, somebody listening or watching this needs to cry out to you in faith. To open their heart to receive you as their Lord and Saviour. May this be the time when they cry out to you and receive you. Friend, if that's you, simply say in your heart, I need you in my life, Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved from my sin. Please forgive me for my sin. Please come into my life and change me into a person that you want me to be. Fill me with your presence and I want to live the rest of my life for you, Lord. When you pray that prayer, friend, God will hear you. And the Bible says he'll change you and you'll become a new creature. Father, thank you for those who have prayed this prayer. We give you all the praise and all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me today and you're watching or listening to our online service, why don't you just let us know that you committed your heart to Christ and send us an email at info at newhope.net.nz and we'll be glad to send you a packet of material to help you on your journey. That's our commitment to you. God bless you as we stand and sing.